This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Stark. I'm joined here with uh, Martin uh, Lichmetz. Uh, he's an uh, Austrian uh, journalist, and we're going to be discussing uh, his new book. Uh, it's a German language book, Ethno Pluralismus, but it's about the the political concept of ethno pluralism. Uh, Martin, it's great speaking with you. Hello. Martin, can you give our audience some uh, background information about yourself? Well, right. I I was born. I live in Vienna. Uh, I am a journalist, writer, and translator. I have been associated with uh, the German New Right and also with the identitarian movement in in Austria and Germany. <clears throat> and uh, by now, I have written several books. This is probably my I don't know sixth or seventh. I haven't really counted. I have also done a few other things, like uh, I did a German translation of the famous novel Camp of the Saints by Jean Raspail in German, and it also became a minor bestseller in 2015 when we had the refugee crisis. So, well, I guess these are the most important things to say about me. The book is about ethno-pluralism uh, and uh, the concept, it's generally associated as far as the origins go uh, with uh, Alain de Benoit and the French New Right. Uh, can you give a sort of, like to start things off, like a brief introduction to the concept and uh, why you decided to write a book about it? Yeah, I'm not sure if I can make the introduction brief because my book was all about sorting out what this concept actually means. It has been used as a, a catchword, but uh, initially not on the new right or so-called new right when I joined it, which was back in about 2005 in Germany. I don't recall that anybody would really use that word or that concept. And it became a new, it uh, became fashionable, so to speak, in new right circles again with the identitarian movement, where it was picked up by, for example, Martin Selner and others, and those were heavily influenced by these uh, French new right writers. But it was there all the time in the writings of the so-called experts on, on the far right. There are plenty of them in Germany, and they're all funded by the state, and they all write these, uh, these framings and interpretations of what the new right is supposedly about. And if you are yourself, I mean, uh, consider yourself to be uh, a new right person, you will not really find really what, what you actually think when you read those uh, those books. But these are the ones that are 
uh, dominate uh, the discourse and that dominate Wikipedia pages and dominate um, information sites funded by the German state. So there's the problem of the right that we have, we need to frame our own concepts, but at the same time somebody else is always doing it for us. And uh, I thought that this concept of ethnoplorism was mentioned all the time in, in uh, these books about the far right and said, boo, it is a central concept and their interpretation was simply this. Um, th the simplest form would be to say, well, um, we think that every people has a, has a, a right for self-determination, has a right for its own uh, uh, nation or, or country, um, and this uh, does mean that we do respect other people or also other races. Um, we do not judge them, but we just don't want them in our country. We want to have a clear separation between yours and our country, and so everybody can live according to his own values and his own traditions and all that. This is this is the simplest the simplest form form of it. Uh, and uh, there uh, there's a I mean actually I'm starting my book with a joke which is from um, Asterix. You know this is the French comic book. About oh, yeah. the, the goals, yeah, and, and uh, there's an episode with uh, Methuselix. He's that's the way he's called in German. He's the old guy who is married to this uh, stunning young blonde. And there's uh, um, one episode where they have some people from 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 the big city moving into uh, the little village, and uh, the old guy says, um, "I don't worry about strangers as long as they stay where they belong." <laughs> and, uh, and another line he has in that comic book is when he says, uh, um, I, I, I not, have not nothing against strangers, I like strangers, but uh, these people, uh, these strangers are not from here. So this is a sort of caricature of this notion. And um, in my research about the leftist writing on ethnopluralism, I also found, for example, a quote by, by a woman uh, she was a sympathizer of the Freedom Party in Austria and she was interviewed back in the 1990s and she said, uh, I do appreciate foreign cultures, I just don't want to have them close to me. I think it's important to kind of clarify, because there's sort of some confusion about uh, the definition, like are there specific policies, because there, like, there's the idea of having nations that are specific to one group of people and to what degree is that basically similar to ethnopluralism, but just like rebranded for uh, better optics? Yes, I mean, if you, if people look up uh, a concept on the internet, they Google it and they usually find Wikipedia. So I find the German Wikipedia site on ethnopluralism and it's a complete mess. I mean, it has been done over the last 15 years and there were rewritings after rewritings and most were um, just copying from 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 left-wing uh, <clears throat> studies or left-wing books about the far right and there's a huge pile of nonsense rising up so uh, you go there and then you find the thing that ethnopluralism is a notion that uh, replaces um, culture uh, for race so instead of talking about race for example you talk about culture you do not say anymore that it's not races they do not get along with each other but it's cultures and then you make an argument for uh, for example against immigration and this is being summed up with the notion of 
Racism Without Races. This was coined by um, a French a French Marxist, uh, uh, Balibar, Etienne Balibar. He coined this notion in the 1980s, 1985 or so. So you have this concept of racism without races, um, which is, uh, you know, quite, quite fussy. But the main idea is ethnopluralism is just an optics makeup for something, you know, darker, which is probably some sort of, you know, Nazi ideology or old school racism or so. This is, this is the, the narrative, the story, they, they, they go along. And uh, so, you see, I, I wanted to, of course, um, you know, dismantle this narrative, but I also wanted to find out also for myself where what ideas are actually connected with that notion. And um, to my surprise, when I was reading Alain de Benoit, and he had a huge influence on me, um, I noticed that he would never use this word, ethnopluralism, never at all. So when you go to Wikipedia, you're saying it's not accurate that Alain de, Alain de Benoit coined the phrase ethnopluralism? No, it's not true at all. And uh, I also asked him about it, and he says, no, this word was never used in... in uh, you know, Nouvelle Droite writing, so there's also an alternative French word called ethnodifferentialisme, so, or like ethnodifferentialism, and uh, they also did not use it, or they, at least they did not use it systematically. But if you go into what Benoit said in the 1970s, and he has been very consistent until today, it is actually this idea that some call ethnopluralism. But the guy who really coined the word uh, in 1973 was a German new guy, his name was Henning Eichberg and he's a very interesting figure and also the context in which he coined this uh, phrase is very interesting uh, and it led me to uh, this um, conviction or this thesis if you like that ethnopluralism has never been a single dogmatic concept but there are several concepts that can be you know, it's like a family of ideas. There are several versions of it, several um, takes takes on this. And uh, it was never a dogmatic idea. So, for example, if you're interested in the new right and you say, where can I look this up, what this actually is? And so then there is not a single book. Now it is, it's mine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but before that, yeah, before that it, did not, it did not exist. You just had to, uh, and the writings of Henning Eichberg, they were not easy to find. And um, I could talk a bit about him and his notion, which could clarify how this concept actually um, um, started to, to um, the concept started, if you like, you know, I can talk a bit about him. I think it could be quite clarifying what we are talking about. Because I've heard different versions of the same, under the same terminology, so uh, one mm -hmm. version is just kind of rebranding the idea of basing nations on a particular ethnicity, which does have uh, bad optics. Then the other definition I've heard of, of uh, ethnopluralism is basically that it's just where people share the same nation and the same state, but where each group has freedom of association and is able to create their own independent institutions. So I've heard many different definitions. So I want to get to those themes some more, but if you were, if you want to kind of explain the concepts original concepts from Henning Eichberg. I, I guess I just start again talking about Henning Eichberg. He, he's the guy who phrased the, the word ethnopluralism, but um, the concept is much older. 
and I would date it back to the 18th century to Johann Gottfried Herder who was a romantic philosopher so we can talk about him as well but first I want to go to Henning Eichberg and his uh, his political way I think is quite telling about how this notion or this concept came about and what it is about so Eichberg he was born in 1943 in Silesia which is now uh, Poland and um, his family was ethnically cleansed after in 1945 so like many Germans from the East and uh, first uh, the first years of his life he spent in the Eastern zone and then the family crossed over into the Western zone so this is a thing that um, he had all his life this question of his German national identity but it was not connected to a particular state so you see he he would see himself as an expelli from the east in, in Western Germany and he did never feel at home there and uh, when he was a young man he got uh, he was attracted by old-school German nationalist circles like say old-right circles and this is where where he he started writing his first uh, articles and he had his first context and now <clears throat> one of the major publications of that old right or maybe already they were already facing towards something new was a magazine was called nation nation uh, europe nation europa nation europe and it was take it took its name from oswald mosley he had this concept of european nation and it was mostly edited by um, people who were associated with the international Waffen-SS, <laughs> you see, in, in Second World War. So this was, so to speak, um, a fascist background. So I'm not saying it in a, in a derogative way, but in a factual way. But there was an, a pan-European idea behind it. So the idea that Europa had fought two wars in this century, um, both were incited by, by nationalism, uh, and now Europe has to find a new way, a new unity. Germany, Germany and France, for example, have overcome the old enmities, and it's important to have a new European idea because there are two dangers facing Europe, and one is the threat from communism, from the Soviet Union, and the other is from from American. Uh, hegemony, you know, imperialism, American cultural influence or political influence, and of course there were other issues. So in the 1960s there was the whole process of decolonization starting and you could see the rising of, of the so-called third world. So there was a lot of going on in the world and of course this idea, you know, would make sense that Europe needs to, to, to unite. And now, um, so Eichberg, he would in the 19, mid of the 1960s, he would uh, encounter these people from the French new, was, what was to become the French new right. And now this had a similar way like his. First, he started in the old French right, like they were all hooting for, you know, Algérie Française, that Algeria has to stay with France. And um, they also had sort of fascist background or sympathies. And they were gradually moving away from this in the mid-60s towards uh, new positions. And um, they also had a very useful revolutionary spirit. 
and they also were not worried about boxing of left and right. So many of them had ideas that tended much more to the left, sort of socialist ideas or so. And of course, this was the time of the student revolt in 1968 in France, um, when there were very different groups who at times would, uh, would form coalitions and so a lot of was going on and um, the, 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 these young nationalists in France and Germany, they were inspired by this and they thought there needs to be a new way to to um, rebrand nationalism, so to speak. Yeah, And um, for Eichberg, it was now, his central problem was that he was living in a divided country which was robbed of its identity. So on one side you have Americans, the other side you have Russians or Soviets and both are indoctrinating the Germans with their view of history and, and their ideology. But where is, where is Germany now? Where is the German identity now? This was a lifelong question. And at one point he felt that actually all these third world countries that are liberating themselves from colonial rule and from, from Fran French or from British or, or other rule, don't they have something in common with Germany? His idea was that Germany actually was a colonized state, colonized and divided by, by on one side Americans, other side Russians, and that it was prerogative to frame nationalism as a sort of um, emancipatory movement, a movement that would liberate itself from these, these, uh, these foreign dominations, but also from the ideologies behind it. And the ideologies would be uh, either communism, Marxism, or liberalism, American, American liberalism, or capitalism, if you like. And what do these have in common? And his answer would be, well, these are universalist ideologies. They say, this idea I have communism or capitalism is supposed to work for everybody. It's supposed to unite the world and it's supposed to, it's also and both ideologies are based on the idea that all men are created equal. And um, he saw this idea that probably what would be against this? What is the opposite of universalism? And this would be particleism or nationalism. Um, specifically in this um, frame he was thinking of it, like nationalism is also a sort of solidarity, there has to be a social conscience to it, and a rejection of universalism. And so he started to see a bigger picture, like he would say, maybe all these nations or people that are fighting against either communist or American capitalist rule have something in common. Uh, they may be in Europe, they may be in the third world, and even within bigger nations, there are smaller nations or ethnic groups that suffer the same. For example, France is one thing that France used to be a very centralized state and the French nation was, um, was uh, you know, in a way forced upon several ethnic groups like the Basques or the, the Corsicans or um, the, the, uh, the, the, the Bretons and so, uh, groups that used to have also um, movements of autonomy. Let's jump to 1973 and Eichberg, he's a, a sociology student and he's uh, working in an academic framework. And uh, he publishes this one article which uh, criticizes um, European or Western universalism in a context of um, 
what's the word, international development for third world countries. So he says uh, there's this idea of progress that you force upon African countries, for example, an idea where they should advance to, an aim what they should become. They say, oh, these nations are backward and they have to go forward to our industrialized modern um, idea of, of progress. So you have to have an idea of progress and um, you have to lift them up, so to speak. You have to lift them up out of poverty and out of, I don't know, superstition or dated concepts and so on. It's all well meant. It's all well meant. You want to help them. You, know? you, want to, you don't want to colonize them anymore. You want to help them. And now Eichberg says, and he wasn't, of course, the only one. There were also many on the left who had this idea. He says, it, what actually is happening here is that you are imposing a Western concept to other people which it, which it might destroy with this imposition. This imposition might not work for them. It might actually be very, very fatal if you, if you want to make them be like us. Yeah? So, and this is when the word ethnopluralism came in. It was, um, it, its opposite in this article was Eurocentrism. He called it Eurocentrism. So, this Eurocentric idea, the, our European Western ideas or values or concepts of progress apply to everyone, apply to all people. And he said, but you have to realize that ethnopluralism is a fact. So, firstly, it's a fact. He says, if you look at the world, the world is full of different sorts of peoples and cultures. And they have different values and they have different ways of living and they may even have different you know ways of experiencing time and space and of aesthetics and all that this is a, a for, foremost it's it's a fact huh? but the second step is to say it should also be like this you know it's better like this the idea to make everything homogenic to create a one world where everybody has the same values, the same political system, the same economic system is horrible. And this is what universalist ideologies aim to do. Uh, capitalism does it, communism does it, and this is what uproots and destroys people. So this is, this is where, where this, this concept, also the, the phrasing, started. And so I think this is very, a very significant uh, context here. I think when a lot of people uh, hear the term ethnopluralism, they're thinking about uh, different groups uh, sharing sharing the same nation. It's been referred to as a right, like a rightist kind of form of multiculturalism. So what we have now, like the, the kind of current woke culture, what does explicitly have like these double standards, but it could ironically lead to liberalism being dismantled and replaced by some kind of a neo like a neo-tribalism, and you do have these examples of wokeness becoming like, in some cases, more like like almost like segregationist, like the minority groups being given their own spaces uh, in in university, and then there's this idea of replacing multi woke multiculturalism and having a include more inclusive version uh, multiculturalism where all groups, including say white people, can take part. A kind of like multi like a multipolar tribalism. While each group has their own institutions, while maintaining loyalty to the same uh, state, and I mean that that obviously could be a difficult task uh, to maintain. So uh, you mentioned something about the Canadian, like the Canadian political figures uh, Charles Taylor and Greg Kimlicka. Yeah, multiculturalism. So say like the English and the French are as much part of it in Canada. 
Can you comment on that particular model, and is that different than the type of ethnopluralism you're describing in your book? Yeah, well, the, the, the problem about the idea that you have different ethnic groups within a common uh, political entity like a nation-state is uh, where they are located, <laughs> to say it simply. Where, where do they live? What is the space they inhabit in? And uh, the, the, the thing is that nation-states, the way we know it, homogeneous nation-states, are a quite new invention in history. So this idea came up in the 19th century. And Are you talking about the Westphalian concept of a nation-state that broke, broke away from empires like the Habsburgs? Um, yes, yes, uh, but I'm going much further. In the you know 19th century was the time when when the national movements really rose up, and uh, they were aimed at at um, against imperial rule, for example, Habsburgs or Russians or uh, Os Osman Empire and all that. And after World War One, uh, you have the breakup of these empires in several nation states, and you have the. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not yet at at Canada, you know. I'm just making a bit of a further look back into history, and you have the the idea proposed by Woodrow Wilson of the self determination of of, of people of nations, which uh, was on the surface a nice idea, but the main idea was of course to break up these these empires, which were the enemies in the war. And the problem was that the borders cannot be exactly drawn because where the populations live and where the border, where the, um, the the certain um, you cannot draw exact borders according to uh, the nation national population. So this is what created states that were insufficient na nation states after World War One, and sometimes uh, there were blatant. Um, 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 mistakes being made or disregards of, of ethnic interests and all this, you know, fueled World War II, so to speak. So here's, here's, a, here's a problem uh, that the homogenic nation-state is a quite rare thing and you will always have minorities in that state even if a certain people or nation will dominate. There are people who advocate that position of carving out nations that are 100% like homogenous. I just don't see that model as practical. No, it's not only practical, but it's also, I mean, if you apply it in, in reality, it leads to ethnic cleansing, bloodshed. It's very, very gruesome. I mean, it sort of works. It was done, I mentioned that Henning Eichberg, he was from the German East. It did work, sort of, like when after World War II, about, uh, I don't know, 12, 12 million Germans were removed from the East, uh, about 3 millions perished, many of them. Uh, it's, it's a post-war uh, war crime, which few people know about. Um, so, But after that, you had a quite homogenic uh, Poland or, or Czechoslovakia or Czechia, and from that point on, there was peace. It, ha it worked, sort of, you know. Uh, similar, you hear sometimes um, uh, Israeli historians like uh, this guy, Benny Morris, he actually um, says that problem of 1984 and the years after that is that the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians was not um, enough. You know, there, there were still too many that remained inside the borders of Israel. And this is a gruesome thing to say, but in a way he's right. So it does work. 
it also works in Yugoslavia, but there's a heavy price to be paid, and I'm not sure if this price is, is worth it. But uh, this is another discussion. I mean, I can go to, to Canada now here. So the Canadian story is interesting. And, so this, you're talking uh, about the Canadian vision of multiculturalism? So, yeah. I mean, uh, today Canada is very woke, but you're talking about the original version. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the wokeness was already included in the original version. It's, in a way, the, the course of things that led up to it. So, um, Ricardo Duchesne, who wrote Uniqueness of Western Civilization, um, he was my main source for this. He wrote a lot about it, also critique of Kim Lika and, and Charles Taylor. And it's interesting how this started. So, first, in the 1960s, you had basically a binational nation, like French and, and Anglo-Canadians. And uh, you had also um, um, uh, natives, you know, Indian, Indian, Indians. So these were three most important groups. Uh, I mean, they, for example, they had very few uh, blacks because they did not have so much slaves. The main conflict was between the Anglo and the French group, and there were great tensions at the time. So the French group demanded more autonomy. There was even uh, terrorist uh, uh, attacks and things like this. So they needed to work out um, a solution for this. But in the course of working out the solution, and it was done under uh, Pierre Trudeau, who was the father of the main, you know, king of wokeness today, Justin Trudeau, um, they developed the idea that possibly Canada could be even more. You could turn Canada into um, maybe something like the first really universal um, nation, multinational nation that might work much better than America, you know, USA, which had also this idea of becoming a universal nation by applying a melting pot, but the Canadian model would be different. You would not have a melting pot, but you would have um, more like um, what Horace Callan called the, the salad bowl. Um, so you have groups that maintain their identity, maintain a certain autonomy, whether it be the, 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 the French or, or the, the Indians, but they are within the framework of, of, of that state. And uh, the next step is, um, I would say, the, the, the next important step of Canada was that they would do away with uh, an immigration system that was based on race. I mean, more or less, like they had in the US until 1960s or Australia until 1970s, I think, which would prefer like white white people to make it easier. But then this race this race um, issue would be done away with, and they would have they would apply more meritocratic um, um, measurement, like to say, okay, we we take in people, but they need to speak the language, they need to be educated, and so on. So this would be the the the, the model, and they can come from wherever. You know, they can come from any any country. Uh, you see, Asians took a lot of advantage of this, so they basically uh, colonized Vancouver and all that. So um, Canada more and more grew into this super, super diverse nation at the expense of the Anglos, I would say. And now comes in Charles Taylor, who is sort of the um, official state philosopher of the Canadian model. And the interesting thing is that he does refer uh, just like Henning Eichberg did 
to Johann Gottfried Herder, the Romantic philosopher, German philosopher from the 18th century. Um, and um, we can talk about Herder maybe later, but the idea is that he says, no, uh, it's uh, wrong to force ethnic groups into assimilation. Um, it it, it uh, hurts their it hurts their their self-respect, their identity. Um, they have just to follow certain laws, but he also would get a step further and say, but in order to maintain their identity, they should be allowed to have certain kinds of different laws. You know, like like in an Indian reservation, they would have some extra laws. You see, so the the idea is is that any every group has to has the state has to provide for a group to maintain their identity, but this would also mean special rights for these groups. So uh, those are example, the special yeah. rights basically means the double standards. So yeah, that's like the foundation of uh, woke ideology as it is. Like, like there's all these different political solutions. You kind of have to rank them as like what are the most practical. And I think a kind of like a kind of rightist version of multiculturalism where all groups are allowed to take uh, part we'd have to kind of discard like the that kind of double standard i think it would like fundamentally uh, change the identity of america but i think i think that's going to be inevitable and you do see this with like american conservatism the concept of maga taking back america i mean it could have a demographic overtone as a lot of woke types will say it's a dog whistle but there's also kind of americanism as an ideology and just kind of over an overall decline in trust in major institutions i do see you could see in the future like many building up social capital and patronage networks rather than relying upon institutions if there is like a major decline in trust in major institutions and just how like white americans are generally uh they're generally fairly individualistic or they think about like more kind of mass society as a whole and then with like civic civic nationalism like the kind of assimilationist model like the the canadian the canadian model of multiculturalism and the salad bowl and the critique from the right that that's bad for uh social cohesion you see this with europe port like the assimilationist model some european governments have there's been like proposals to ban like the muslim headscarves but the thing about the kind of assimilationist model rather than multiculturalism is they're kind of assuming that their group is going to be uh, dominant in the long run and then being able to impose uh, their values upon others so the same let's just say if the demographics fundamentally transform then if that group is no longer the majority they may have to sacrifice their culture for for the values of the majority so the kind of melting pot model that's been promoted generally like mainstream american conservatives will say they support the melting pot and uh i mean that definitely has a flaw so and then there's a you go into kind of the trends of just like neo like neo tribalism a lot of these trends are they're they could be cultural or sociology sociological trends based on how people think or how people function rather than a, an official government system well yeah well i mean the the question is what what does hold these diverse people together? You need to have a common um, the, how you say it. You need to have something common, something they can all agree upon. They can respect. You know, um, I mean, it would work, for example, in in multi 
ethnic or multinational empire as long as the the emperor, the rule of the emperor of the ruling monarchist house is acknowledged by all these people, it does work. But the moment this is in question and the leg legitimacy of monarchy or the emperor is in question, it, it, it does fall apart. Many people say that, for example, Yugoslavia um, did work as long as uh, Marshal Tito was alive. He was a sort of integrating figure, um, which these different nations could agree upon, but as soon, as soon as he died, all the old national conflicts would come up again. They you know, went back to decades and then it all started off again. And uh, as for the American model, well, um, the, the Americanism or the American idea is based on individualism. You acknowledge the individual. And when when uh, Americans will talk about pluralism, they think of a pluralism of individuals. This is what American liberalism is about. But uh, now it turns out that uh, individualism is not so much valued among certain <laughs> ethnic group or that there are other You're sorts basically of describing the double yeah. standard. Yeah. Like there's, uh, I guess, the, mm. like the term heritage Americans and that group mm is more individualistic. Yeah, they have an individualistic mindset and then other groups come in who are more in-group preference and they have an advantage. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like how, how sustainable that kind of double standard is uh, long-term. It's not so much, I think the right complains about like a st uh, institution-imposed double standard, but I think it just it's just kind of the value of individualism and liberal idealism have just been a fundamental of America for a long time, because even yeah, even even like if you talk to a lot of Trump supporters when they talk about taking back America, even like the le the woke left will interpret that as a as like a racist dog whistle. But even then, a lot of times they're thinking more more in terms of Americanism. Well, I think the point is, um, I think there's something true about this notion of some things being implicitly white. You see, so these these values that uh, Trumpers may share about, you know, they're, they're old classical American values about uh, the Constitution and about pursuit of happiness and individualism and all this. But these are um, not explicitly, but implicitly white values. And even if, uh, um, you know, colored people <laughs> follow, follow these I ideals and they will be happily embraced by most Trumpers. They are regarded by their in-group often as Uncle Toms and of people who are acting white or all this. So um, th these values are connected to a certain demographic, to a certain way of thinking, to a certain group. Um, it's also based in, in an, uh, sort of an Anglo-Protestant tradition. And here's one of the issues about uh, ethno-pluralism criticism of universalism that sometimes you may think that your values are universal but you will find out at one point that maybe they are not maybe they are in fact uh, tied to a certain demographic or a certain group or a certain culture a certain way of thinking and here comes in a sort of a, a paradox um, which which uh, is also um, you know, it's it's closely tied to the idea that all men are in fact equal, which is the basis of universalism. So you think everything that applies to one man or one group must apply to all. And um, of course, the whole idea of universalism and universalism is something that is uh, 
um, big in Western culture. It's one of the core things of Western culture. Um, it, it wants things to be like this. Now it has this urge to say we want to expand, we want to have it for everyone and you may do it in a very good faith. You may really think that if you expand human rights on the whole planet the world will become a better place but it, 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 um, it, it does not work in the end because other cultures really are different. They really think different. They really have different um, concepts of how societies about the world, concepts about themselves and so and this is why the, the um, multiculturalist model had its biggest problems with Muslim immigration into Europe. Uh, so because Muslim values are on the whole more conflicting with Western values than any other, it's harder to integrate. I mean, it even, you know, is the source of animosity. You see the thing happening in France right now. I mean, they had, again, some Islamist attacks and they have this problem for many, many years. They have a huge Muslim population and now what to do about it? And Macron, he comes with the old French idea of um, they have to be uh, con converted to French values like, you know, division of state and church. And Yeah, Macron is advocating like a civic, civic nationalism, but based mm -hmm. on liberalism and... Uh... Yeah, kind of like assimilationism. I mean, friends, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting to see um, within the, the French New Rights, um, there had been a conflict uh, starting, I think, in the 80s or 1990s. Uh, there was this one Nouvelle Droite uh, writer, Guillaume Fay. He, he died last year. And he split from Nouvelle Droite in 1986 or 87. And when he returned uh, with his famous book, Archaeofuturism, he had a critique on ethnopluralism, the way it had developed within the new French, the French right. Um, and he said, that, well, the concept makes perfect sense if you um, consider spatial separation. And if you use it as an argument in a French context, for example, you say, okay, the French, we withdraw from Algeria. There were actual settlements of French people in Algeria, the so-called Blackfeet, the <laughs> Pied-Noir, and they withdraw after the, the independence of Algeria. But then the next step is to say, okay, but we also refuse that we have now immigration from Algeria. We do not colonize you, but we also don't want you here. We have uh, spatial separation, this is the way it, it, it would work. But now, this of course did not happen. There was a huge immigration from from uh, North African countries, former colonies, into France, and this created this whole Muslim Islam problem. And at one point, Alain Benoit, he would adopt a view which was very similar to Charles Taylor, um, by the way, called co communitarism by communities, communitarism. Um, I mean, he had to follow up on his old position that he would reject universalism, he would reject a centralist state, the French centralist state, and prefer, you know, the regions instead. And now you have all of a sudden this uh, stubborn Muslim population which is uh, refusing to assimilate, which keeps on the values. And um, also Benoit saw why why should, if he doesn't want to 
have universalist values imposed on, for example, ethnic groups, regional ethnic groups within France, why should they be imposed on, on Muslims? So he would refuse this and he would say, no, he's, a, he's against, uh, uh, you know, they shall build mosques, it's okay, he's against all these laws like, like banning uh, burqas or so. I mean, of course, it has to be adjusted, so they would follow, Muslims would also follow the law and there would not be too much conflict, but in fact he would adopt the communitarian stance towards Islam or Muslims in France. I think he has changed ever since a bit this position, but he was criticized within French and right circles that he has become an Islamophile. And Guillaume Fay, who was his old friend, and now they had separated, he would criticize him and say, well, the notion of ethnopluralism is absurd if you disregard the spatial separation, because now they are in our country. They do not belong here. The Algerians belong to Algeria. And now giving the Algerians special rights or autonomy or uh, not even trying to make them assimilate is very dangerous because it would mean they would demographically take over. My general view is a lot, I think a lot of these trends of like, glo like globalization and the weakening of nation states, a lot of them could be, be inevitable. I think the trends that I that I see in the future are people acting more as like tribes or diasporas. So I think best case uh, scenario would probably be like a right like a rightist multiculturalism where all groups are allowed to have their own institutions and cultures, but there would have to be some kind of uh, common agreement. And I'm sure econ the economic model would uh, factor into that. So it's not perfect, but I think it's like the best. Kind of the best case yeah. uh, scenario. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I, I don't see this um, a chance for this uh, common agreement. Um, I mean, imagine, you know, you would have also Western nation states adopt an ethno pluralist idea, but the thing is that those groups that immigrated, they are not ethno pluralists. <laughs> usually, usually, people from Islamic countries are not ethno pluralists at all. I mean, also, Islam is a universalist uh, uh, um, religion. And um, I think Alain de Benoit, in a recent interview, he said as much that um, Islam tends to have an expanding metapolitical force. You cannot say, I mean, ideally, the, the, the Charles Taylor politics of recognition uh, thing would be that I recognize you are different, you recognize that I am different. So I respect that you, uh, I don't know, mutilate clitoris and you respect that we wear miniskirts. I mean, you see I'm exaggerating here, but you can see that it actually doesn't, doesn't really work. Because uh, also if you really believe in, in, in your cultural value system, um, you probably won't be able to tolerate so much things that really strongly go against your values and there's always this you know this thriving this will to power this this expansion and here's one of my critiques of ethno pluralism one thing yeah. i want to clarify yeah. about this yeah. Yeah. is is your book promoting the ideology um partly yes i mean i i i my my main point is I just want to sort out what kind of ideas are there to have an understanding and then in the final chapter make an assessment what I think is um, 
uh, worthy, what 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 uh, is is useful, and what will not work. But I'm just proposing it. So you see, I have I leave it to the reader of my book to pick out what he thinks uh, is 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 working or is is makes sense or is good. Yeah. So it's not a book uh, promoting, but it's more written as a sort of understanding. I just want to understand first what is going on. And this is why the subtitle is also called Critique and Defense. So I'm both defending the concept, but I'm also <laughs> criticizing it. But the most book, most of the book is right about the history of the concept, which I think helps to, to understand what it is about. Then there is like the the concept of freedom of association and yeah, in the in the kind of American uh, framework, the, the example of like Native American uh, reservations because of the history of uh, of oppression, like they're given some special rights to a semi a semi autonomy. So, what do you do you think about like that model of expanding expanding like semi autonomy to more re- like regional autonomy? And how, how familiar are you with that model of the Native American reservations, where they have mm-hmm. they have control over who moves in there, and they have like their own their own school system, their own police. I'm not sure if that works so well. I have let a lot of critique about it that this become, you know, this is being abused, the system for illegal activities, to have this casino thing going on. I'm not sure how much it works in order to protect the native identity. I mean, as an ethnopluralist, this is the thing that would concern me the most, but I don't know how much. American natives are concerned by that, or how much uh, you know they really can keep up a Native American identity with modernization. How much this this uh, this aligns, uh, you see? So, uh, but I guess this is a minor thing or a minor problem because there are not so many of them uh, st- still around. Uh, I, I don't see. I mean, on, on first glance, reservations for Native Americans seem like like a good thing, and they do not seem to impede national unity uh, in a, in a in a in a bigger sense. And so all there might be some issues with illegal activities, or there might be some issues that they don't actually serve to protect Native American identity. I mean, one one thing maybe I would like to address is um, that. You know, we live in a time where diversity is supposed to be the biggest value of all. So everything has to be diverse, and often it's not very clear what that concept means. But at the same time, concepts like um, ethnopluralism, which also aim for ethnic or racial diversity, they are regarded to be the enemy. You know, they are bad, they're evil, they're racist, and so. So there is a strange contradiction here. Um, and uh, often, you know, in the beginning I mentioned this uh, literature on the far right, which also emphasizes that on the surface there may be similarities between multiculturalism and ethnopluralism, but of course these are totally different things. And so, so I see I see uh, something strange going on. I see right-wing people today mostly have an agreement uh, that they are not only um, they are not only striving for their own nation, but there's a common idea that we are fighting for the idea of nationhood in itself, or the idea of ethnic diversity in itself. And now 
there's a there's a difference um, between multiculturalists and ethnopluralists. How this ethnic diversity can be maintained? What are the conditions of it? You see, and multicultural concepts are also not uh, homogenic. There are different kinds of concepts, and sometimes they are pretty confused. Some people say you just mix people together. Some people say it's more like the Charles Taylor patchwork, and for some people it's it's uh, some sort of vague, fluid idea that in the future nobody will really have a fixed identity. Everybody will be a sort of individual. And uh, none of these things are really convincing. And here's the great one of another of the important differences between multiculturalists and ethnopluralists. That ethnopluralists say the differences can only be maintained if you segregate to some certain point. You don't have to completely isolate, yeah? but you have to have a border between you and the other group. And you cannot let anybody in. You cannot let anybody. Um, have a saying what your group is doing and this is of course deemed as being you know racist and ignorant and all that and um, actually this sort of ethnopluralism that emphasizes that sometimes you need to be <laughs> intolerant or you need to be segregating in order to maintain your identity was defended by the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss he was a, a French ethnologist and anthropologist, and he is he he is in my book one of the most important thinkers of ethnopluralism, even though he never used that word. He's not new right or rightist at all, but uh, in his um, he wrote two important essays for the UNESCO, one in 1951, one in 1972. One was called Race and Culture, and the other was called Race and History, and um, it's a bit complex to go more into detail into that, but uh, the bottom line in his essay, Race and Culture, was where he said that, you know, the idea that everybody should be tolerant to everybody else, everybody should unify, everybody should acknowledge everybody else. First of all, it doesn't work out, and second, why should it work out? Because um, is it really a good idea? If everybody embraces, doesn't it mean that differences will fall away? Aren't differences also made of, of tensions and of antagonisms? And so what he was saying is this, that there are two ways that can go wrong. One way is you isolate yourself completely, then probably your, your culture, your tribe will, will also die. But the other way is that you open yourself up, you're completely tolerant, you give up your identity, then you will be overrun as well, or you will give up what is unique about yourself, you see. So um, he, he said there is a, there's always a, you know, uh, you have to find a balance, a balance between segregating and between being open. I think different concepts would be, would make more sense in different geographic locations. So, uh, I think things are different in Europe, but like I'm from California and think for like California, mm. for California in particular, like the kind of Canadian, the original Canadian model might be like the best case scenario, but it would be different for regions in Europe. You have to take into account each particular geographic location. Yeah, certainly, because uh, if you really take it um, seriously that uh, different people or cultures are different, then uh, you will realize that you cannot have uh, 
I mean, you cannot make ethnopluralism into a universalist idea. You're falling into a trap because then you're uh, also assuming in some strange way that maybe everybody is the same. So, um, I mean, here's one concept we should mention when we talk about ethnopluralism. And this dates back to, to Herder, the German philosopher I mentioned. And um, this is the concept of the Volksgeist in German. Volksgeist, which means the spirit of the folk or the spirit of, of the people. Uh, you will find this word in German idealism, in Hegel or so, and it has a bit of a different meaning than in Herder. But the, the main idea is that every people, or every folk, or even every race or so, has a certain spirit, has a certain soul that, that motivates it. And how can you see this soul? How can you describe it? And for Herder, who was a romantic philosopher, he could find it especially in, in folk poetry or in folk songs. He could find it in the expressions of the folk. They express something unique, some certain kind of spirit. And uh, this is what he was looking for. And he had a vision of all these folksgeists, of all these spirits possibly one day living in a harmony because each of them has a different color in the uh, you know the the, 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 the painting the, the, if the world is a big painting that God has made then every race every every folk every people is a color and every has everyone has a place in it so this is a romantic uh, probably a bit too idyllic picture but this idea of Volksgeist is very important because it says, there is a spirit in people and it might not match with others. So it's best when they have a place where they can live according to this spirit. Now there's a bit of a problem to that because um, imagine that you might have a people or a certain nation and the spirit of your nation is not in accordance with ethnopluralism at all. You might be a Roman from antiquity and as a Roman from the antiquity you would be convinced that it's your job to conquer the world, to extend the empire, to bring Roman civilization, Roman peace, much like Americans uh, thought today or in the in the 20th century that their civilization, their ideas, their values are good for everyone. So um, here's a contradiction that you might say all the Volksgeist, all the spirits of the folk might live according to their own genius or vocation but what if this genius or vocation is against ethnopluralist principles? You see what I mean? I mean, as far as different yeah. different regions of the world, you don't see it as compatible. You see it as more compatible with specific uh, nations. Like mm -hmm. specific mm -hmm. examples, like just looking over the world. Mm -hmm. But you see, there's a practical aspect to it, um, which also was in, you know, Henning Eichberg. For example, um, if you have a, a neoconservative view of the world, let's say an imperialist American Western chauvinist view of the world, you are, for example, convinced that um, you have to convert all the Islamic countries to a Western American way of life. And in order to do that, you have to do a lot of uprooting. I mean, you even might have to bomb them into democracy. And often these sort of rhetorics would be seen as a, a cover, a cover for more, um, you know, will will to power aims. So you, you would use a human rights uh, or universalist rhetoric, but you had a very uh, mundane um, 
uh, aims, you know. So um, what I'm saying is this: that uh, universalism is something that is ingrained in our Western thinking, but at the same time, it's just not practical. You cannot make Africa to be like us. You cannot make Muslim countries to be like us. You know? It's it's absurd. It will not work. But the point is, it will not work in Africa, but it also will not work if you move Africans to Europe. You will not make, they will never become like us. They will never, you know, maybe some can, maybe can assimilate, but in the long run, it, it will not work out. And I think this is one of the important things to understand if you think in an ethno-pluralist way that you have to take pluralism seriously. And this is what the left is not doing when they talk about diversity. If you look closer, they not really want to know about differences of between people. Um, I used this. Um, I, I I used this. Um, I called this the Smarties dogma. I don't know if you have this. A Smarties is a chocolate chocolate lens. Do you know it? And it's covered with a sugar coating, and every and it's very very bright colors. So you have blue lenses, yellow lenses, red lenses. But the idea is that beyond the sugar coating, everybody is the same. So when when leftists talk about diversity, they mean a very superficial kind of diversity. And uh, if you look closer, they always think in, in racial terms. Yeah. The idea of liberalism that all all people are interchangeable cogs, but I actually, and that's capitalism's obviously part of that too. But I actually think mm. that ironically, mm. the woke culture will backfire and lead to more like a like a neo tribalism. Yeah, it's, it's because uh, there are real differences there. And um, when right-wing people say, okay, you talk about diversity and about differences and how they shall be recognized and acknowledged, let's talk about real differences. Like, let's talk about um, sexual, religious, uh, uh, cultural, racial, all kinds of differences that there are. And then the left screams and says, oh, this is horrible, this is racism. So you see, this is very superficial. Um, Diversity, if you type it in at Google image search, then you will find these images of these rainbow colored, you know, you have these people of all races and they're all smiling and they're all happy. And uh, what is signaling diversity is actually their race or the, the, the visual race. You see, wow, okay, this man is Asian, this man is black, so it's diversity. But the message is that under this sugar coating, they are all the same. We are all the same. And this is what you would reject as a right-winger. You would say, no, we are not all the same, but this is okay. This is good. You know, this is when, uh, you know, ethno-pluralism in, in its best sense comes in and it says, there's nothing wrong with this. Huh? There's nothing wrong that um, Africans are not like us or that Muslims are not like us. I'm not um, required to like it. You know, I still can have a judgment. I still can say, okay, I mean... They go their way, but still I think our way is better. You see, I don't think there's anything wrong in, in saying this, but it becomes a problem when you want to missionary others, when you say they should become like us, they should be more like this and this. It will not work, you know, it will just lead to terrible uh, uh, conflict and all that. Um, but yeah, sure, I mean, at one point people want to be the same, but at the other, uh, on the other side, they want to be different also. At one point, it's it's like a circle a bit. A bit. You see, there's there are the both drives inside man. One is I want to be equal, 
and the other is saying I want to be different, I want to be recognized as, as being different and this is why you cannot kill tribalism. It will always surface again and again. Uh, what are your thoughts on Orania, the Afrikaner uh, town in, in South Africa? Do you mm. see that as a model of ethnopluralism? Well, mm, they are in a besieged position. You know? I, uh, I mean, of course, they try to maintain their, their identity. I mean, it's a better solution than apartheid. Apartheid could not, never have worked in the long run because you have a minority that depends on the labor of a majority of people and you have all these sorts of segregations could never have worked. You know? So I guess the, 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 the best solution would have been that all white people move into one part and all black people in the other part, but I guess there are issues with that. So uh, I would not name anything in South Africa as a model for ethnopluralism, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, this, this is a, out of a crisis, you know, it, it was created as a, out of, 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 of oppression, out of necessity, you see, and I don't think they have a, a, a bright future ahead, I mean, uh, it looks really bad for South Africans, white South Africans, uh, not just those that try to make this rainy experiment, but all others. You don't, like, see a scenario where the nation is uh, partitioned into smaller ones? It's a desperate measure. I mean, I can say Orania is, is a good example for ethnopluralism. It's a desperate measure. I mean, good luck with it. But I think I think in the long run, they are doomed. Probably they should resettle somewhere else. I don't know. I mean, I hope they will not be doomed. I hope they will survive. I hope there will be a way that they can survive. But it's just made out of necessity. And I mean, it's, just, it's an example that if you are, a, especially if you are a besieged minority, you have to be intolerant, sort of. You see, you have no other way. Otherwise, you will you will not you will not survive. Uh, I mean, Levi, Levi Strauss made this point, for example, about the um, natives of the Amazon. These were the ones he studied. What his famous his most famous book was called uh, the, the Tristropic, uh, the sad, the sad, sad, sad tropics, um, sad rainforests. Um, and he was writing about how hard it was for natives in, 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 in the Amazons to keep their way of living. Uh, you know, they were modernized, they were exterminated, their, their, their um, what is the word, the, their space they inhabited, you know, was destroyed, the rainforests and all this. And they had to become intolerant, you know, towards others, towards other groups in order to maintain their identity. But there's always one point when you reach the end of the line. I mean, for example, there are few peoples on this planet that are not contacted. contacted. Uh, there, are, there are supposedly some in the rainforest still, but for example, there's this tiny tribe in, in the Indian Ocean. If you remember this story, a few years ago, an American missionary tried oh, yeah, to go I there. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. He, he came there with a the football and, of course, they just, you know, <laughs> killed him and, and ate him up. I don't know. No, they did not eat him up, but he, he was just killed and uh, authorities uh, of India they did not intervene or do anything. I mean, uh, I, I read nobody's even sure how many are on this island. It's probably, some say it's just 20 people, some say it's more than 100. But you see, these are not, these are probably the last not contacted tribe. They had no 
direct contact with civilization except killing everybody who tries to approach them but you can see they are doomed if they are just 20 people I mean how harshly they procreate it will just be you know incestuous degeneration and the one day they will they will disappear and probably nobody will, will really miss miss them yeah I mean this is also one aspect of ethno pluralism I, I call it the romantic ethno pluralism which is the um, dirge or the mourning about the disappearance of, of native tribes um, I give you one example I mean, are you familiar with with that book, uh, Camp of the Saints, by Shah Raspai? Yeah, by you know what? I have a I have a copy of it, but I haven't. Yeah. I just started reading. So it. They, I mean, okay, it's about this invasion of third world people to Europe, and Europe is in a, a sort of religious frenzy, welcoming everybody, and of course, this turns out very bad, and they get overrun by the masses from the third world. And now the interesting thing about Shah Raspai is that he used to be a traveler in the 1940s and 50s as a young man and he had a special love for Patagonia in, in the you know South South America uh, really deep down uh, South America and um, he says that in his youth he would witness the last remnants of a tribe which were sea nomads they were in a, a, a native tribe and they lived on the sea they were nomads and they lived a very harsh and brutal life and um, they gradually became extinct the moment when they got into contact with with uh, people from the West, from Europe. And he wrote a novel about them and it's a sort of reverse camp of the saints, which is from the point of view of the natives and the, the invasion of, of Europeans becomes a disaster for them. In the long run, they are doomed to, to disappear, to die. And uh, Charaspai said he, he was he saw in a snowstorm on the sea. He saw far away one of their boats. It was empty, and he became he really got a shiver and terrified. And years later, he thought, "What if this could happen to us? You know, what if we, the Western or white people, would disappear one day?" And um, he would um, pursue his interest in these lost tribes. And one of his greatest books, which is not translated into English, but into German, was called um, The Aches from from the, the Steppe. Is this word the Steppe or the Grasslands? The Aches from the Grasslands. And it's about his, um, his, uh, his uh, searches for lost tribes all over the world. And his experience he had, especially in the Caribbean Sea, he knew it very well. But he also has a fascinating story about... Um, um, Germans who um, were with Napoleon when Napoleon invaded Russia and German soldiers stayed there and they they married women who were there who had no man and they lived in a village ever since and maintained the German language and then in 1941 when German troops again invaded um, well this time German troops back then French troops but there were German soldiers also there Prussian soldiers so in 1941, German troops invade Russia, and these German soldiers come to this village, and they see the descendants of the Germans who were with Napoleon, and they speak German and they recognize each other and they few stay with them. I don't know if he had invented that story. It seems like he has invented this one, 
but he has a lot of stories about these disappearing small ethnic groups on this planet and this book is also a lament it says well this is the course of the modern world diversity actually disappears the more we talk about diversity nowadays the less we have because that people become more and more the same consuming the same things is 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 a fact you know? i mean i don't think they will ever become all the same you know it I mean, that's the objective of ethnopluralism is to preserve mm. that, but I just think tribalism is such a powerful instinct. Yeah, I see it as uh, as inevitable. And I think the idea, like, the, the idea that the left, they want to kind of abolish abolish tribes, but I just see maybe new new tribes could could form out of changes like new identities. So those are, I mean, those are the kind of the trend uh, long term. Before I wrap up the show, uh, Martin, do you want to comment on the on the current events, briefly on the current events uh, in Austria, and then also if you want to plug your book, the publisher, and then where people can find it, and if you're planning to release an English edition? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure if it would be interesting for English audience. Uh, I haven't thought about it, actually. Um, it says pretty well here. The first edition is almost gone, and uh, so I don't know. It's not up to me to, to decide. Maybe somebody would be interested. And as for your first question, well, I mean, this is the first major Islamist attack we had in Austria. I mean, there was one in the 1980s, but this was Palestinians, Palestinians attacking a synagogue. And uh, now we have something more like in France. And as it turns out, it is really, um, let's say, an ethnic problem. We had, unfortunately, Muslim immigration. It started in the 1960s with the Turks. We had lots of Muslims coming from Bosnia in the 1990s and also Chechenians. And now we have this, this guy who basically ran Amok in the Vienna inner city. Uh, it's, it turns out that there's a network behind him, there are a lot of sympathizers, Austrian police made some raids in Islamist organizations and in mosques and um, there's a real swamp there, you know, and it was created by a false immigration politics and now it seems like in Austria we are starting to face the same problems as in France, of course they are far more progressed, it's much worse there. But uh, I see I see these problems uh, coming up here, and uh, and of course nobody has a solution. They just say the same lines as they say in France or anywhere else that did not work there. But at least they are doing something and now doing raids in in in, in mosques and Islamist organizations. Uh, I don't know how, how this will work out, but. It came as a big shock to me. I mean, I live in Vienna, and I think this is a total horrible thing, and it really depressed me. It is a really, uh, really troubling situation. It was great, great speaking with you, and uh, yeah, for people in the audience, at least who are fluent in German, check out his book *Ethnopluralismus* and Martin Lichmatz. Uh, it was great speaking with you, and thanks for being on. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs>